Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You may locate these texts in your pew Bible on page 879. First, let us prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our, go- the word of our God shall stand forever. If you are the Son of God, What does Satan mean, if? Is Satan trying to cause some self-doubt in Jesus? That question comes to my mind because that would totally work on me. Ask a question like that and every self-doubt demon would come to the surface in me. I have an eternal, internal second guesser. Is Satan trying to erode Jesus' self-confidence, sowing seeds of doubt? Maybe I'm not the Son of God. Maybe God doesn't choose people like me. If I understand the text, interpreting this as an assault on Jesus' self-esteem misses the point. Satan is not trying to challenge Jesus' identity. The temptation for Jesus and for you and me is to know that we are God's children but not to live like it. The temptation is not an attack on identity. It's an effort to alter behavior. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Okay. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with bread, particularly if you haven't eaten in 40 days? I was listening to someone this week. She chose to give up 
coffee for Lent, which strikes me as craziness. But she chose to give up coffee for Lent and was grumpy about it. It's just the first week of Lent, and we'll already move from conviction to grumpiness. And I get it because giving things up is not easy. That's why for Lent this year, I have chosen to give up skydiving. And uh, oh yeah, and running with the bulls. I'm not running with the bulls for Lent. So some people will do something like give up sweets. Jesus gave up food. And, and so if, if you haven't eaten in 40 days and you are famished, and you have the power to turn a rock into a Reuben, what's wrong with that? Okay, we may not have noticed, but I've already stumbled on this temptation. I have stumbled because I'm already working to figure out why something that is not good is good. I'm, I'm trying to rationalize why that which is evil is actually not a bad thing. You see, we do that all the time. We, we seldom are tempted to do things we think are really bad. And what we do is we figure out the reasons why the bad thing is really the good thing. And then it's not temptation, it's just doing the good thing. This weekend, we welcomed our Manili visiting scholars, Drs. Margaret Amer and Carolyn Helsel. They're of Austin Seminary, and part of Dr. Helsel's field of study is racism in American history, and she walked us through the, the theological and biblical justification that Christians have offered in former times to justify the practice of slavery. They looked at arguably the most significant sin of this country and reasoned out why not only was it not evil, it was actually God-ordained. It's amazing how creative we can be in making biblical and theological arguments when we want to do harm to our neighbor but we want to believe Jesus is on our side. Now, don't let me confuse. I'm not suggesting in any manner that any of us would justify slavery. But I just don't think we are categorically different from our ancestors who did. Like them, we can be blind at times, sometimes intentionally so, to the neighbor we are supposed to love, and we construct our own justifications for passing by on the other side. Because when Christian faith questions our status or power or financial position, and we don't want to sacrifice any of that, I don't want to. Who would want to sacrifice any of that? Well, then we get creative on redefining the wrong thing as the right thing. That, in a nutshell, is temptation. But there's more to this story than that. Uh, command these stones to become bread. It, it's not that it's bad. It's just too small. The truth is, Jesus is going to give bread to people all the time, including 5,000 in one sitting. 
What Satan is trying to do is to take Jesus's focus to feed the world and redirect it and reduce it to just feed himself. Forget about the world, Jesus. Pay attention to your own hunger. It's not bad. It's just too small. It's what happens with each temptation. It tries to take a good thing and make it too small. And each time Jesus is faced with temptation, what he does is he reaches back into the old book of Deuteronomy and he lifts up a verse that gives him guidance. He, he remembers verses he probably memorized as a kid, vacation Bible school stuff. And he, he lifts it up to guide him. And what, I, what I've never noticed before, I, I saw it for the first time in preparing for this sermon, is that Jesus recites these verses not really as answers to the temptations, but rather the verses reveal the weakness, the flaw, even the evil of the temptation. Here's, here's what I mean. The temptations describe being a child of God, being the Son of God, in a binary fashion. You know what I mean? He says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones, throw yourself down, fall down in worship, because that's what the Son of God does. There are no other options. It's cut and dried. So if you don't do these things, well, you must not be a child of God. It's a binary conversation, either or, this or that, no negotiating, no nuance, it's binary. And Satan evidently loves binary. Why? Because it distorts the complicated realities of life together. By making things appear to be simple, yes or no, in or out, us or them, good or bad. Have you ever been in one of those group mixers or conversations that are forced choice exercise? Do you know what I'm talking about? You're presented something and you have to choose A or B, door number one, door number two. You know, like, are you a early bird or a night owl? Choose one, all right? Or, or that, that was pretty easy. Do, do you prefer Mozart or Motown? Can't like both. You got to choose one, all right? Which do you prefer? Uh, are you more like an antelope or an aardvark? That's a harder one, right? That's a harder one. Uh, or, or, I, I want sloth. That's what I, I want, sloth. Do you, are you more like scrambled eggs or bacon? That, that's the one when I quit playing the game. You see, some things can work that way. can be clear. But not relationships. Not community. Life together is not binary. It's complicated. So Jesus responds to the temptation by rejecting the binary construct. He refuses to accept the either-or choices presented him. Command these stones to become bread. He says, Satan, you have no idea what we really hunger for. Your whole premise misses the point. 
of what it is to thrive as a human being, you have no idea how to feed us. There, there are at least, it seems to me, at least two dangers to talking about life in binary constructs. See how you think about this. You may see this differently than I, but let me tell you how I'm thinking about this. There are at least two dangers of defining life through binary constructs. The first is it enslaves us to a false understanding of life because it pretends that truth is simplistic and always clear. And the second, is that binary constructs will almost always create distance with a neighbor. So we are in an election year. That, that means that everything is going to be presented to us in a binary construct. Everything important and a lot of things that aren't will be presented as either-or language. The issues will be presented in black and white, either-or terms. Either the government is going to fix everything or the markets are going to take care of everything. Choose door number one or door number two, and they will be presented as different from one another, as good and evil. One righteous side, one evil side. And we are going to be tempted to be drawn in because we would love for the things that make us anxious. We would love for the things that worry us to be that simple. We would love somebody to give us the fix. Binary construct is seductive, but it is also destructive and too often this partisan binary talk creates the context in how we talk to each other we adopt their language and context to talk to each other and it becomes destructive because we live in a complicated world that actually demands that we embrace nuance, that we sometimes claim the middle ground, that we sometimes acknowledge mystery, even paradox. Life together, community, relationships are complicated and binary constructs. If you are this, then you must do this. It's dangerous. Because it's, it's not often true, and because it creates tension with the neighbor. Now, don't let me overstate this. Uh, some things, binary constructs, are just fine. Our son, our son Nathan, lives in New York City, and one of his jobs, he lives in New York City, so one of his jobs is he's a barista at Cafe Grumpy. It's a coffee shop in Grand Central Station, and he's become quite a barista. And so when he comes to visit us, he brings us coffee, really good coffee, and he describes it for us. All right. he, he describes, he said, Dad, you're going to love this coffee. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. It has tea-like acidity, stone fruit sweetness, and a hint of blueberry with nutmeg and leather on the nose. 
Really, I said. I thought it was coffee. He said, take a sip. So I take a sip. He said, how is it? I say, it's good. It's good. It's good. The truth, I didn't get the nutmeg and leather. I, I, I promise. I, the See, the truth is, I'm kind of binary with my coffee. It's either good or it's not good. And that's okay with coffee. It's not okay with each other. It's not okay in community. Because life together is complicated. Jesus rejects these temptations. He responds not with certainty or a simple answer from a verse, but instead with depth and nuance and conviction. And like Jesus, we are always being tempted. We are tempted to treat relationships too simplistically. And when we do, we do damage to each other. Mark Dunkelman, he's written a book called The Vanishing Neighbor, and, and he, he observes that more and more, more and more, we tend to think of neighbors not simply as those on the street or in our neighborhood, but as folks with whom we connect through technology. And he says those relationships are different because technology empowers us to choose neighbors who are like us. You know, if you've got a hobby, you can, you can find people who share your hobby. If you like to knit or, or hike or bike, you can find folks that like that on online. And you can find folks who see the world the way you see the world that way. Share your political perspective, share your worldview, share your own experience of the world. And Dunkelman argues convincingly to me that the more that we connect with folks like us with whom we have agreement, it gives us the impression, it feeds the impression that every reasonable person thinks like I do. Every good person sees the world the way I do. And so when you bump into somebody who's not like that, we tend to think they must be crazy or worse. He says when we don't connect with people of other circumstance, of other life experience, of other worldviews, Dunkelman says... We have less confidence in the average goodwill of the stranger. When my network is built with folks like me, then I assume folks who aren't like me are not very good people. So, that's a binary construct and it erodes relationship and we see it all the time from 2011 to 2019 Pam Bondi she was the she was the attorney general for the state of Florida very conservative politician and so she enacted very conservative policies and some folks on the left took issue with her it was reported recently that she was going to a movie in Tampa and was accosted by some progressive protesters. And they did not 
challenge her policies. They verbally attacked her. They said she was a terrible human being. They got aggressive with her. They called her a horrible person. They attempted to block her entrance to the movie. They were so proud of their taking the right stand that they filmed it. The irony is that all of this was happening as Miss Bondi was attempting to see the movie Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary of Fred Rogers. It's, it's interesting to me that we have started reaching out for this man in this season. The partisan binary nature of the American civic conversation surrounds us, and it feeds a lack of civility. And it's not just on the left. It is the daily genre of our current president who belittles anyone he is in opposition to for the day. It is the constant tone of talk radio, of many news channels, and it is eroding us. The binary narrative, it's not different enough from the narrative that our ancestors appealed to to explain why some could be slave owners and some would be slaves. We have work to do. See, it's not, it's not enough to be right on whatever the issue is, regardless of what you think the right is. It's not enough to be right. We have to be righteous, which means some kindness, civility. We need to relearn humility because these are the traits that nourish community. You know, Fred Rogers, he was not a partisan man but he was very political in, in this sense. Like Jesus, he was concerned in every circumstance about how we are with one another, how we treat one another. That's, that is the basic definition of capital P politic, how we are together. And Fred Rogers, he was concerned about that, and he believed that we can be and we should be neighbors. That was his word. He didn't make that up. Like Jesus, he reached back into the Torah and lifted up a verse he learned in vacation Bible school, love your neighbor as yourself, and he used it to guide him in the face of temptation. Now, I haven't used the word freedom today in this series on freedom, but I trust you can see that when we accept overly simplistic, false descriptions of who we are and how we are with one another, it enslaves us. It doesn't set us free. So if you are a child of God, and you are, and don't settle for simplistic narratives of how we must be with one another, for binary constructs 
They will enslave us to destructive behaviors with each other. And if there is a devil, he would delight in nothing more. Pray with me. Precious God, we believe, help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.